Thanks for downloading the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. In this episode, as part of the healthcare system's Regional and Comparative Perspectives in Britain and Ireland, 1850-1960 conference, a paper by Dr Sally Sherd of the University of Liverpool. Her paper was entitled The Roots of Regionalism, Municipal Medicine from the Local Government Board to the Dawson Report. My title, as some of you will have seen and think, oh, that looks familiar, and it's uh, a play on... John Moen's Social History of Medicine article, which he called The Neglected Roots of Regionalism. And John was looking at the uh, Commissioners for Neglected Areas and Hospital Funding for the 1930s. And I think now we can almost drop the word neglected um, from studies of 1930s municipal medicine. There was John's excellent book that came out last year with... Uh, Lisa Levine, Martin Powell. There's been work by Martin Gorski, going back to the 1980s, several articles by Roger Lee on the geography of uh, interwar municipal medicine. But I think there's still a case for neglect for the earlier period, going back to the last third of the 19th century. And although there were some excellent studies done, Jean Brand's Doctors in the State... Anthony Wall's work on the development of public health in the 19th century, um, there still seems to be a big research gap in that area. And my own interest in this um, has been intermittent. Um, this paper that I'm giving today draws very heavily. I dug out working papers that went back to 1993, 1994, 5, when I worked with Bob Millwood at Manchester and we had an ESRC-funded project then. Um, I then went away and I looked at another aspect of public health, but from a central government perspective, looking at chief medical officers, and I worked with Liam Donson. And then I came back again and tried to look at how you can integrate, as as we were discussing yesterday, how you integrate the great men with the political and the economic and social history. And I think that's the challenge that, that faces a lot of us around this table. I'm going to begin with a quote. I'll read it because the text is rather small. The quote comes from Sidney and Beatrice Webb's 1910 book, The State and the Doctor. And it's a nice way into acknowledging that this is an underused, under-researched area. And you can see the Webb's frustration at their inability to get information on municipal hospitals. They say, somewhat remarkable that there is neither systematic governmental inspection nor central audit of municipal hospitals. The town councils are in practice quite free. The local government board, we understand, has no other official knowledge of this branch of civic activity than it can glean from its own local taxation returns. And it's the local taxation returns that Bob Millward and I were using in Manchester in the 1990s and from reading the annual reports of the 1800 Medical Officers of Health, with which it is supplied, which it does not for publication summarise or review statistically. There appears to be no official statement of how many sanitary authorities or what proportion of the whole either maintain their own hospitals or make arrangements to use other hospitals or make no provision at all. And this is really quite a damning statement for 1910. 
40 years, nearly 40 years after the creation of the Local Government Board. But by 1915, there were 1,148 municipal hospitals containing nearly 40,000 beds. And this had been achieved over decades of expansion. Uh, And if you go back to 1879, um, you can see the speed of that transformation, the scale of it. In 1879, there were only 296 sanitary authorities out of 500, sorry, 1,593 that had made any provision at all for isolation hospital provision. So the, the genesis of 19th century British municipal medicine is evident if you go back and look at the pioneering work of towns like Liverpool in the 1840s. But it's important to recognise that it was a reactive uh, um, attitude and it was the essence of localism. It was temporary, it was geographically constrained and it did not challenge national laissez-faire ideology on what the state should do in terms of medicine, public health. The the beginnings of the national change become apparent in the 1850s when John Simone moves from a position, a London-based position, to a national authority level when he becomes the first medical officer to the Privy Council. Um, And it establishes a medical civil service with inspections of public health policies at the local level. And Simone constructs for himself a team, quite a small band of brothers, that he then sends out into the districts to uh, survey and advise. Um, And I looked at this in the book on the chief medical officers and how he constructed the team, the difficulties that he had in constructing that team. Simone was aided by an act in 1866, the Sanitary Act, which really articulated the first principles of municipal medicine uh, and provided legal authority and financial support for removing infectious patients from their homes and isolating them in designated isolation facilities. But the, the use of this act, as with the 1848 Public Health Act, was permissive and it was piecemeal. So although it required local authorities to make provision, they could do this in a number of different ways. And the preferred option for a lot of local authorities was not to build their own municipal isolation hospitals, but to make arrangements with the poor law authorities um, within their district, which also had some responsibilities for isolating infectious patients within workhouse infirmaries. But the relationships between these various branches of local government, between the town councils, poor law guardians, um, was quite often strained. And if I have time, I'll talk about Liverpool as a case study and show you how that negotiation happens on a very local level and the issues involved. It's 1871, with the arrival of the local government board, that... uh, initiates really a a sort of a a threshold step in municipal medicine change. And through it, 
we have an expansion that is funded, facilitated by a system of grants and loans. Some of them quite complicated, but local authorities work out very quickly that this is a useful source of income and they can exploit it quite effectively. There's a very good study of the local government board by Christine Bellamy, Central Local Government, so Central Local Relations. Um, she's great on the politics. But she actually says very little um, about health services and about municipal isolation hospitals. But that's a very good place to start if you want to pick up some background knowledge on the local government board. So the local government board operated on its medical side through its chief medical officer, through its system of inspection, and many local authorities were slowly compelled to either initiate or upgrade its services. Uh, and the early reports of the local government board make clear their frustration at exactly how limited and how slow some, some authorities were. This is a quote from 1876 annual report. We still, however, too often find that the pressure of an epidemic is required to induce local authorities to incur the expenditure which the provision of such buildings entails. We have frequently had to point out that the most essential requisite with regard to a hospital for infectious disease is that it should be ready beforehand. This, the, the, these reports are wonderful, and the, as you go through the 80s and the 1990s, the, the sarcastic tone becomes ever more apparent. Uh, the 1875 Public Health Act uh, did require compulsory isolation of infectious diseases, and it gave authority to local authorities to erect hospitals. But again... The wording of the Act uh, was poor. It said that authorities could provide hospitals or temporary places for the reception of the sick. And it's crucial, I think, that alternative phrase, temporary places. Um, and many local authorities responded by opening um, very make makeshift buildings, uh, very poorly staffed, often only staffed when they, when they needed to. Uh, needed it and it was epidemics of diseases like smallpox that uh, initiated those reactive measures uh, for example the smallpox epidemic of 1870 to 1873 killed over 44,000 people there were further outbreaks of smallpox in 1881 1884 and at each time, we have exactly the same rhetoric appearing in the local newspapers. Where's the isolation facilities? Why did we let the hospital close last time? Why haven't we maintained this? And you look at the cycle, and it's a very frequent, regular cycle. So towns explored alternative uh, isolation facilities, often liaising with the poor law authorities, uh, but the local act, sorry, the 1875 Act did empower the local government board to compel local authorities to act together and to provide hospital accommodation where they considered it appropriate and to make appropriate joint financial arrangements. So 1875 is an important date. It's a very early date, really. 
at which you have the potential to have collaboration between uh, neighbouring local authorities. So this is a golden opportunity, but it's one that's not, I don't think, fully exploited. And it needs further research. It needs local case studies to understand why that opportunity is not exploited. In 1882, the local government board decide that they require a greater understanding of how local authorities are handling the issue of isolation and the provision of isolation hospitals. And they send one of their inspectors, Richard Thornthorne, I've never understood why his surname is Thornthorne, but it was Thornthorne. All his reports assigned Thornthorne. Um, he later became chief medical officer in 1892. So in 1882, he did the first, really, of the national surveys of hospitals. And he's, he went off with a team of his inspectors from the local government board. And they found that only 296 of the sanitary authorities in England and Wales had uh, some arrangement for isolation facilities. They found that where there were good hospitals, they were very well used, um, but that most could be criticised for their reactive strategies. Um, they were particularly critical of towns like Manchester and Salford, neighbouring local authorities. Manchester had an excellent isolation hospital facility. Salford refused to send its patients there. So the 1882 report is really, I think, the first comparative analysis. <coughs> Perhaps a little unfriendly, if you go back to Chadwick's reports in the 1830s and the 1840s, and again you get a comparative analysis coming out and a sense of benchmarking of what is an acceptable sanitary standard. But in terms of hospitals, the 1882 report is, is really a critical one. It also, for the first time, tried to articulate, um, calculate uh, an expression, number of beds per thousand population. And it found a wide variation uh, from Sheffield with 0.2 beds per thousand to Darlington with 1.3 beds per thousand. It also looked at the establishment the capital cost of providing these isolation beds. And again, they ranged from £116 per bed in Tombridge to £347 per bed in Cheltenham. So that 1882 report shows a wide range, both in the costs of municipal isolation hospital provision uh, and in the extent of provision. In 1888, we have the creation of county councils, which eases some of the administrative complexities. And then in 1894, we have the reorganisation of urban rural sanitary districts. Along with that, we have a series of acts uh, beginning in 1889 with the Infectious Disease Notification Act which facilitate actually identifying who needs isolation treatment. And a very important survey by the BMA in 1893 uh, 
that for the first time attempt to quantify what they think is the optimum provision per thousand or per 10,000 and they come up with a figure of 10 isolation beds per 10,000 population. The Isolation Hospitals Act of 1893 again is, is a, a useful indicator of the tensions between local and national uh, policy. This act is important because it creates a mechanism for collaboration. Uh, it allows neighbouring local authorities to join together and to form joint hospital boards uh, managed by joint hospital committees which would have representatives from the constituent bodies. It allowed county councils, the newly created county councils, the authority to use the county rate to create isolation hospitals and then to recover the cost from the contributing local authorities. So we've now got um, an ideal financial mechanism for, for actually providing facilities on, on an adequate scale as the BMA survey had identified was necessary. And it's interesting that the 1893 Act also included a clause that really favoured local knowledge and the application of local sanitary knowledge. And it was a clause that said that an appeal by 25 ratepayers to a county council should, would trigger an inquiry by the local medical officer of health. And that if the local medical officer of health decided that an isolation hospital was required, it would then be deemed appropriate for the county council to go ahead and impose <coughs> one, even if the local authorities, the town councils, the sanitary councils, objected. But that's a nice indication of how local knowledge is built into the legislative procedures. I have to speed up quite a bit when we get to Liverpool. Okay. So during the 19, sorry, the 1880s, the local government board uh, struggled. It struggled with manpower. It struggled with administering loans. It struggled with inspections. Uh, but it acknowledged that it should be establishing some ideal requirements for what a municipal hospital should be. Um, and it had the, a sanction. It could only agree to fund expenditure if it approved the plans for the hospitals. So it had some degree of, of control over what local authorities were doing. And particularly in the 1890s and the 1900s, what we see is the smaller, particularly the rural authorities, being prodded and pushed by the county councils using the local government board into providing hospital facilities that quite often way above what they actually needed. So we have small authorities building hospitals that are then sitting empty because they can only take infectious diseases. Uh, and if you don't have the infectious diseases, the, the, the hospital is basically redundant. So there is a mismatch, I think, going on between what the local government board wish to see and what the local authorities feel that they should be providing. 
1900, they issue, the local government board issue a further memorandum on the provision of isolation hospital accommodation. Um, and then there's another Isolation Hospitals Act in 1901, which again uh, tries to push neighbouring local authorities into collaboration, um, sharing the provision of isolation hospitals. It also relaxes some of the financial controls over how they can raise the money and where they can recoup money from. So to talk very briefly about the variation in municipal hospital provision, um, the work that I did with, with Bob Norwood uh, looking at the local taxation returns was one of the most fascinating projects that I've done. Um, I'd never worked with an economic historian before. Um, I don't know if I would again. Bob's... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that sounds pretty negative. Bob's, Bob's whole approach to the project was that we could extract the numbers from the local taxation returns. We could build a, a sort of an analytical machine that would then look at economic trends and that that would be all we would need to know and that we could see patterns of expenditure. And I was there constantly battling and saying, but Bob, we need to go and look at the minutes of the, of the town councils. We need to see when they're approving expenditure, what they're approving expenditure for. We can't just do it as a straight economic analysis. So we, we had an ongoing battle over, over three years. It was a very interesting uh, intellectual battle, I think. Uh, but one thing that did come out was to show that, and if you look at the paper that we put in Economic History Review in '95, you will see there some graphs which summarise this massive explosion in local authority expenditure, both recurrent and capital, particularly in the 1880s through to 1914. We showed by analysing a variety of towns of which we chose for their size and their geographical location. We had samples of small boroughs, large county boroughs from the south, midlands, north. We showed that the highest recurrent expenditure per capita was in the north of England, the lowest was in the south. We showed that boroughs spent the most per capita, uh, and then the municipal boroughs spent less than the county boroughs. And we showed that demand for services was sensitive to costs facing local authorities, independent of other factors such as housing conditions and mortality rates. And if you look at hospital expenditure, and I'm sorry this is not a great graph, um, you can see that... Uh, when expressed as a percentage of local authority spending, recurrent hospital costs um, averaged less than 0.5% in 1885. They peaked in the early 1900s and then fell back by 1914. Capital expenditure also moved with a peak around 1900 through to 1907 and then begins to decline. And from a town-based analysis, it emerges that the largest towns were not always the biggest spenders on hospitals in terms of recurrent expenditure. Uh, 
Large towns like Manchester were spending 1.5%, whereas medium-sized towns in our sample, like Nottingham, Plymouth, Norwich, St Helens, were spending more than the national average. They were traditionally spending about 3% of their total annual recurrent expenditure on municipal hospitals. So I think it's important that you see hospital expenditure in the context of competing costs of other municipal services and the availability of alternative accommodation, uh, particularly through the poor law. Um, I'm not going to talk about how the costs are covered by loans, and, but there is a lot of information in the papers I published about how local authorities get the money to build the hospitals, and it is an important determinant. Big county boroughs had access to a wider range of funding mechanisms. They could issue their own uh, bonds, they could go on the, the wider financial markets, and the local, the tiny uh, sanitary districts. And there's a very good article by um, Preston that also looks at correlations between rises in rate values and increased expenditure on services um, through, through this period. If I just talk for two minutes about Liverpool, I'll try and finish on time. Liverpool is a great example of why you have to match national studies, such as the local government board studies, with detailed local case studies. Liverpool shows uh, quite how difficult the local government board found it to push authorities into providing hospitals. Liverpool Town Council, through the 1870s, always responded to epidemics by pleading with the poor law for space in the workhouse infirmary. In 1885, the local government board wrote to the council and said, we insist that you build your own permanent hospital and we want you to provide 750 beds. So they did an assessment and said, we need 750 beds. There were negotiations between the town council and the local government board, and they pushed the figure down. They kept pushing it and pushing it until the local government board approved a plan for only 160 beds. That shows you quite how much the local government board was amenable to, to pressure at a local level. And it wasn't until 1894, when we have a new, progressive, ambitious medical officer of health in Dr Hope in Liverpool, that the issue of a permanent solution, an adequate solution, is finally resolved. Um, and this just shows you... Uh, through the sort of 1880s when they're still getting epidemics, they're not investing in it. When Hope arrives in 94, he's increasingly in favour of pushing up expenditure on, on municipal hospitals. The spike in 1903 is the creation of the Fisakli Municipal Hospital, which was a huge um, undertaking, 510 new beds. Okay, to conclude... This paper um, has tried to develop an argument that shows that there is 
considerable diversity in the provision of municipal hospitals in this last third of the 19th century and into the 20th century. And I've not had time to talk about the period up to the Dawson Report, which I know my title suggested that I might do. Um, I think it's interesting that Dawson's report is never discussed in, in the earlier context. We always hear of Dawson, Dawson's report arriving in 1920 as if he's informed by his military experience in the war and this sudden vision that we're going to have a primary and a secondary healthcare hierarchy. He must have had some understanding of what the local government board was struggling with on a local level. For many of the studies of the local government board have portrayed it as a significant determinant of the course of local authority development and it did wield the threat of withholding grants and it did force the construction of isolation hospitals not always appropriate for the size of the authority. But the example of Liverpool and I think other local authorities uh, will show that it took repeated years of criticism to achieve expansion. And I'm still struggling to understand quite why these very helpful clauses that appeared in the 1875 Act and the 1893 Act are not exploited by local authorities to the extent that they could be. Joint hospital boards remain problematical. There are issues with representation there are issues with accountability. There are issues with reimbursements for patients across um, local authority boundaries. These are the sorts of issues that are beginning to hinder that geographical rationalisation of uh, municipal hospital provision. Yet by 1915, there were nearly 40,000 municipal hospital beds. The range of diseases that the MOH would admit to these hospitals had gone beyond the purely infectious. There was a new spate of building of municipal hospitals in the 1910s and the 1920s that were now seen as explicitly general municipal hospitals, for example the one in Bradford. So the period from 1870 is one of unparalleled reorganisation within the British bureaucracy. And it coincided and to a degree assisted with the transition from the sanitarian responses to infectious disease to the period of personal prevention. But the chronology of hospital construction has to be integrated into a larger financial and geographical model it needs to acknowledge the priorities for huge capital investments for town councils in waterworks, sewers, roads, schools. And the local government board and the MOH have to be seen in dialogue together and also with other authorities such as the poor law authorities. So an analysis of the development of municipal hospital services illuminates a number of other debates in the late 19th century we can look at the effectiveness of the local government board. We can look at the increasingly sophisticated local financial markets and the development, uh, the embryonic development of regional systems of service provision through joint hospital boards. Thank you. Thank you.